Ferrari, I'm the legal advisor of NGO Monitor. We're a Jerusalem-based organization. Um, and we monitor the activities of human rights groups and humanitarian NGOs that operate in the Arab Israeli conflict. Um, at the conference so far, we've been hearing a lot of examples of modern-day anti-Semitism. Um, and I'll, I'll just go over a few incidents that have happened over the past year or so. Um, in the UK, um, Israeli officials are wary of traveling there for fear of being arrested as war criminals. Um, in May, the second uh, highest Israeli diplomat in the UK was attacked by Palestinian protesters, leaving a, a speech in Manchester. Also, just in June, a judge in the UK actually acquitted um, a group of vandals uh, who, had a, who had attacked a factory on the basis of um, supporting Israel. So basically, they invoked that Israel made me do a defense, and the judge let them off um, in that case. In Sweden, uh, one of the largest newspapers last year um, printed an article that uh, basically reviving medieval blood libel that Israelis were harvesting Palestinian organs for profit. Um, here in the US, uh, Michael Oren, the Israeli ambassador, has been um, heckled at speeches, Brandeis University. Um, there was a challenge of him going speaking there as a commencement, giving the commencement address. Um, many universities are contemplating divestment from Israeli corporations. And in Canada, there have been a lot of attacks on synagogues, and Israeli apartheid events are flourishing. Now, one might think that these events are um, the work of Muslim extremists, or Holocaust deniers, or other far-left-wing radicals. But unfortunately, a very often overlooked aspect of these events is that is the role of human rights and humanitarian aid organizations in these campaigns. And more disturbingly, um, many of these campaigns are actually being funded by the European Union, many European governments, large humanitarian Christian organizations such as Christian Aid in the UK, Trogra in Ireland, and Diakonia in Sweden. And also, several prominent foundations are providing the funding for these campaigns, such as the Ford Foundation, George Soros' Open Society Institute, Oxfam Novib of the Netherlands, and even, uh, very surprisingly, the New Israel Fund. Um, so while NGOs have been engaged in these campaigns for a long time, um, at the UN 2001 World Conference Against Racism in German South Africa, um, we marked, there marked a major ex escalation in, in this type of campaigning and strategies. So at the conference, 1,500 officials from NGOs gathered and accused Israel of perpetrating Holocaust, ethnic cleansing, a uh, new kind of apartheid, crimes against humanity, and genocide. They revived the Zionism as racism slogan, and activists marched in mass protests, declaring what we have done to apartheid in South Africa must be done to Zionism in Palestine. Jewish participants were intimidated and excluded from meetings. Um, these racist and anti-Semitic attacks were not limited to Palestinian groups, but international NGO superpowers such as Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch played a major role in creating the hostile atmosphere there. Um, so up here on the slide, I have a few excerpts from the NGO declaration from the German conference. And that final declaration basically established what we call the German strategy, a policy of complete and total isolation of Israel's an apartheid state, 
and calling for the imposition of mandatory and comprehensive sanctions and embargoes and the full cessation of all links between all states and Israel. Now, the German strategy has become the cornerstone of the global anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanction, or BDS movement. Um, so here are just a few Im images from the BDS, various BDS campaigns. Um, we have um, the Blood Orange campaign that was put out by Oxfam Belgium in 2004. Um, it sparked a lot of controversy. They eventually did uh, rescind that poster. Um, at the bottom, this, this is a photo from a protest in Brussels just a couple months ago where several EU grantees and actually new Israel Fund grantees participated in a, in a divestment protest and were actually drinking blood symbolically to symbolize Israeli, Israelis drinking the blood of Palestinians. Um, and in the UK, we see um, the movements for academic boycotts, um, church divestment campaigns, the uh, union boycotts, um, and then also we have a lot of uh, major international aid organizations like Trocra, Diaconia, Amnesty International, uh, campaigning for arms embargoes against Israel. Uh, they've been very involved in trying to downgrade EU-Israel relations, um, most notably campaigning against the EU-Israeli <coughs> Association Agreement, and also to try to block Israel from entering the OECD. So these are just a few examples of the BDS movement. Um, another uh, category of campaigns that grew out that grew out of the Durban conference is what I call NGO warfare. Um, so there's approximately five or six NGOs that have been responsible for the cases against Israelis um, around the world um, in universal jurisdiction lawsuits. Uh, so we have, for instance, in the UK, there have been several initiated by the Palestinian Center for Human Rights um, against Doral Malmug. Um, also in Spain, we have a case uh, against seven Israeli officials. Uh, that also involved the NIF and EU-funded NGO Adela. Um, we have Al-Haq and Al-Mazan that are also European-funded. Brought tried to have Yehud Iraq arrested at the end of September in the UK. Um, and also, um, there was a case against, an arrest warrant issued against Sidi Lubni in London in December 2009. Uh, we're not quite sure which NGOs were involved with that. Hamas actually has its own war crimes NGO called Tafek, and um, they claimed responsibility for that case, but we're, it's unclear if some of these other organizations that are usually behind these cases were also involved. And of course, since the Gaza War, NGOs have played a major role in lobbying the International Criminal Court and the prosecutor there to take up the case of Israel. And some of the NGOs involved in that lobbying effort include Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Al-Haq, PCHR, Adela, uh, the, the um, Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, and the Federation for um, Human Rights in France. Uh, the Goldstone process was probably the major manifestation of the Durban strategy over the past few years. Um, NGOs were very active from the beginning of the Goldstone process. They actively lobbied the Human Rights Council to set up the Goldstone mission. Um, NGOs were involved. Goldstone held a, a town hall in Geneva where he, he got testimony from NGOs. Amnesty International circulated an outline, a proposed outline for his report, which he subsequently adopted. They also provided him with a list of 36 incidents that Goldstone claims he investigated in his report. Um, over um, 500 NGO claims and submissions were incorporated into Goldstone's report, often 
often repeating unverifiable and false claims. Um, so to uh, that Israel is deliberately um, attacking Palestinian civilians. And since the Bolton reports come out, NGOs have been uh, largely responsible for the campaign to lobby for the report. And I find that to be a, uh, basically an act of self-promotion on the on behalf of these organizations, since their claims are incorporated into the report. By then, lobbying, if the report was not accepted, it would be casting doubt on the credibility of their own claims. So basically, this lobbying amounts to self-promotion. Um, so basically, NGOs invest millions of dollars every year into publications, public relations blitzes, and lobbying efforts, utilizing the rhetoric of human rights and international law to single out Israel as the violator and abuser of international law and human rights. And by catching these political attacks in legal terms, NGOs seek to create a veneer of credibility and expertise, thereby increasing international pressure against Israel. And since the 2001 German conference, we've seen this process play out on many occasions. We have Janine in 2002, the um, ICJ case against the security barrier in 2004, um, Lebanon War in 2006, of course the Gaza War in late early 2009, and just this past year with the Flotilla. Um, the process is usually the same. Israel is faced with a spate of terror attacks. And, they res and, is and responds with increasing severity. NGOs then issue countless condemnations, mostly against Israel, making accusations of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and the intentional targeting of civilians, based on speculation or little to no hard evidence. The media and the international community adopt these claims at face value, and rarely um, engage in independent verification, what we, what we deem as the halo effect. If you claim you're um, acting in the objective of human rights, people will automatically give credibility, credibility to your claims. So whereas journalists will not necessarily uh, take a government's claim at face value, oftentimes they will merely just repeat an NGO's claim because that NGO claims that they're advancing human rights. Um, at the UN, and as we heard from Amineski, particularly at the Human Rights Council, NGOs engage in further condemnations and the UN then calls for international investigations of war crimes trials, and NGOs are then called, um, called upon to play an integral role in those processes as well, further entrenching their influence and claims. The context of terror is completely erased, as are Israel's rights to self-defense and self-determination. Virulent anti-Semitism from Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah are completely ignored. And we've documented on our website countless examples of this activity. Um, so I'm going to highlight a few now of some of the most egregious, but there's on our website hundreds if not thousands of examples. And I also have a copy of some of our reports in the back that you're also welcome to take. So according to these NGOs, Israeli apartheid, colonialism, and occupation are rooted in the concepts of Zionism and a Jewish state per se. So they are not based on specific policies or territorial disputes, uh, specific policies of the Israeli government or territorial disputes. And as such, the German strategy matches several working de definitions of anti-Semitism. So here we have the EU um, Working Group for Anti-Semitism, and it was also subsequently adopted by the UK Parliamentary Committee on Anti-Semitism. It's the denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that Israel is a racist, is a racist endeavor is an example of anti-Semitism. 
Alan Dershowitz came up um, in a lengthy article, several criteria of what he would deem to be anti-Semitic um, activity as opposed to just criticizing Israeli policies. And Earl Kotler, who's here, has noted that a new globalized, virulent anti-Semitism uh, denies the Jewish people the right to live as equal members of the family of nations. And I also highly recommend um, the new book, Trials of the Diaspora, from Anthony Julius, where he also documents several anti-Semitic canards that have been adopted by the anti-Zionist and the NGO movement. So now I'm just going to go through a few um, uh, themes that NGOs um, use in their reporting. Um, so the first one is that Israel is an apartheid state. And again, we have uh, the indictment of Israel is an apartheid state also involves the calling for the dismantling of Israel. So even though Israel is in no way comparable to the apartheid regime in South Africa, and based on a lot of the definitions utilized by NGOs to define apartheid, um, pretty much every country in the world would be guilty of apartheid. Um, most of these NGOs are only campaigning against um, supposed Israeli violations. And also, these organizations ignore um, you know, could be said to be gender apartheid or religious apartheid in countries like Saudi Arabia. Another theme is the Judaization or the Zionism is racism theme. Um, the Judaization claim is very interesting. It's actually terminology adopted by the PA. Uh, the PLO has a website called the Negotiation Support Unit, Negotiation Affairs Department. And on that website, they have uh, many policy briefs on several um, topics, and one of them is Judaization. And it's quite interesting, when you go through these policy briefs, a lot of the arguments laid out in those papers are actually then echoed in the NGO community. And so one of them is Judaization. Um, so you have a group here, Iramim, that's funded by, um, by Europe and also the New Israel Fund, is utilizing this term about East Jerusalem. Um, but, it, but it should be noted that it's not just about East Jerusalem or the West Bank, but many NGOs also use this term to refer to neighborhoods in Yafo, Akko, and the Negev. So in essence, um, these groups are also challenging the legitimacy of a Jewish state within the Green Line as well. And it's basically painting is um, Jews and Israelis as foreign and colonial occupiers who have no historical ties to the land. Another um, theme that they've adopted is that it's basically reviving the discredited uh, Zionism as racism canard. Um, so basically, under, under this theme, Palestinian self-determination is considered an international legal obligation, whereas Jewish self-determination is considered racist and illegitimate. Um, the law in return is deemed racist. Jewish symbols, such as the Megid David on the flag or the Hatikva, are also deemed to be racist. And although most countries in the world, and in particular in, in Europe, and also amongst Muslim countries, there are official state religions, there are religious symbols on the flags, Israel, again, is the only country where this is being deemed as racist, where this is being um, used as a, as a uh, standard for why, why the state itself is illegitimate. And in addition, a lot of NGOs are campaigning and trying to transform a political and territorial dispute into one of race. So groups like Amnesty International, when they put out condemnations against the security barrier or checkpoints, oftentimes they say, Israel has imposed a system of checkpoints
checkpoints in, in order to discriminate against the Palestinians because they are Palestinians, totally erasing the context of terror um, and removing that aspect. Um, this is an NGO that deal that's funded by some European countries. Um, they advocate for the rate of return, and they sponsor the contest um, called the Rate of Return Caricature Competition, and this is one of the examples of, of that contest. And you can look on their website, they have a couple hundred um, entries. Um, but again, this is the type of thing that is being produced with European taxpayer money. Um, another theme that is quite prevalent, unfortunately, in NGO campaigning is Holocaust and Nazi rhetoric. Um, so we have Mata El Carmel and Adela, which are Israeli, Arab-Israeli NGOs and are funded by the New Israel Fund as well as Europe, um, put out a document in 2007 called the Haifa Declaration, which basically called for the dismantling of Israel as a Jewish state. And at the end of the document, they know that you know, the Holocaust um, should not be used um, to belittle universal human and moral lessons to be learned from this catastrophic event. It should not be used by the Jews to establish their state. So again, European and Jewish uh, money is being used to fund these types of activities. Um, Alternative Information Center often invokes uh, this type of rhetoric in their, in their publications. Amnesty International, also in 2007, put out a report on the security barrier, and they deemed it the wall of death, which is harkening back to Auschwitz. Um, other types of imagery and rhetoric, um, uh, NGOs frequently refer to Palestinians being held in ghettos, um, ethnic cleansing. During the Gaza War, a group of Israeli NGOs claimed that Palestinians were being held in pits, um, that Gaza's one big concentration camp or one big prison. Their publications often use uh, Nazi imagery, such as barbed wire, or images of a Palestinian child holding his hand up, being shot at by, by the IDF. Um, one very troubling example from the Goldstone Report, um, Desmond Travers was a Goldstone mission member and has since engaged in quite a number of anti, far radical anti-Israel campaigning, including testifying to the Russell Tribunal, uh, which took place in Barcelona and attempted to put Israel and its allies on trial, um, basically eliciting anti-Semitic testimony from an NGO representative at the public hearings Goldstone held in Gaza. Um, so, for instance, he asked this question, and, and just to let you know that the witnesses that appeared in the public hearings for Goldstone were all pre-vetted in advance. So the mission members knew what people were going to say, and they specifically chose that because they wanted to make the messages public, and Goldstone himself has acknowledged that. So here we have Desmond Travers saying that Israel used seemingly unmilitarily unnecessary violence, um, actions that are very, very strange and very unique, now, of course, anyone familiar with warfare knows that these types of actions are, if they happen, are not strange or unique. They happen in almost every conflict. And he's asking these NGO representatives, what mindset or what conditioning or what training could bring around, bring around a state of behavior that would cause a soldier to shoot children in front of their parents? So in response, the two members of the Gaza Community Mental Health Programs that are also European funded, responded that the Israeli soldier has the image of absolute superiority, that you know, they don't think of humanity at all, 
and that there's an identification with the aggressor of the Nazis. So this is on the public record of the Goldstone hearings. It's on the UN website. And if you'll note, in the Goldstone report, it's quite interesting. They, um, they actually used brackets on a lot of this testimony to take out the more offending language. So like sometimes when the, these two representatives were afraid to choose, they would put Israelis in brackets. So it's quite interesting when you, when you take a look at that. And again, the, the testimony is available online, and you can also look at it in the report. Um, another theme are adoption of religious themes. So overt um, um, references to the Canards of Deicide. So here, this is a British NGO called War on Want, also again, European and British government funded. Um, they, they put out a series of Christmas cards every year. So here we have Joseph and a pregnant Mary um, being searched at the security barrier on the way to Bethlehem. And many um, Christian, Christian NGOs also have um, sold nativity scenes where, which have the security barrier running through it. I'm just running out of time, so I'll just quickly go through this. Um, Christian Aid did the Child of Bethlehem campaign. Um, of course, we have modern-day blood libel accusations deliberately targeting Palestinian civilians. Um, here's a look at the massive funding that's going into these types of campaigns. Um, as you can see, Oxfam's budget rivals that of, of you know, large corporations. In contrast, the Israeli Hasbara budget is about $10 million. So you can see what, um, what the Israeli government and Jewish community general is up against. Um, Ken Roth frequently uh, invokes this type of Bible. You know, he'll claim the NATO in Afghanistan and Pakistan stress the importance of protecting civilians whereas Israel wants to pummel civilians. And of course, we know that's not true. Um, the US record in, in Afghanistan in terms of harming civilians is much worse, actually, than Israel's record is. Um, again, uh, putting forth quotes to ascribe racism to uh, Tibi Livni. Um, here's just a list of, of the massive funding we reported to these NGOs by the EU. And this is a chart available on our website just showing also the many countries that are giving money organizations. As you can see, there's a lot of repeat um, donors. Again, we have uh, here some more examples of demonization. The deal, again, organizing a targeting campaign to expose the Jewish community, Jewish and Zionist community's double standards, expose the lies of the APAC and the Anti-Defamation League. Um, Palestinian Center for Human Rights hosted a conference in Cairo entitled Impunity in the Prosecution of Israeli War Criminals. As you can see on the poster at the bottom, they're thanking the European Union and Oxfam for funding the conference. Um, NIF, unfortunately, is also pouring lots of money into these same organizations. Um, we issued a set of guidelines that we thought the NIF should follow to stop these practices. And actually, this week in the Jerusalem Post, there was an article that they may actually be considering doing something about this. For a long time, they denied they were doing it. Um, now, they're, they're starting to realize that there's a problem. Um, this was a poster put out by a group of NIF grantees um, to, uh, for this conference, My Land's Based Body and Sexuality, which shows an Israeli soldier groping Palestinian women. Um, so again, the, the best thing we can do um, is to name and shame um, the funders of these campaigns. Um, and to point out the destructive impact. Um, we've had a few successes. Also, the Human Rights Watch, unfortunately Michelle's not here, but she used to work for Human Rights Watch. Um, 
Human Rights Watch, a lot, they've had a lot of scandals in the past year that are finally getting out in the press. Um, there's been some massive changes in NGO funding. Canada's cut over $11 million in funding to these groups. Um, Schroeper in Ireland, they've had their funding cut. Um, NIF guidelines. And so hopefully we can begin to make an impact. One plug we have all the speakers because we're really pressed on time. So if you don't have a chair, it's getting the broad.
So Israel certified Brit Brita's seltzer bottles when they exported them into um, Europe. They, Israel, the Israel Customs Authority certified them as, orig as uh, originating in territory, quote, under Israel Customs Authority. The German Customs Office in Hamburg was skeptical, uh, pressed further, and asked whether the goods were produced in the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, or the Golan Heights, um, in a specific question directed to the Israel Customs Authorities. That inquiry went unanswered, for whatever reason, discretion being the better part of valor or something. Um, uh, Germany then imposed full import duties on the products and said the EU-Israel agreement doesn't apply to products, uh, to these particular products. Britta took that decision to court in Germany, which then referred the question of treaty interpretation to the European Court of Justice. Uh, the European Court of Justice, as is its practice, requested a legal opinion uh, requested a legal opinion from the Advocate General, so the EU's Advocate General. This is a, um, an office that I wasn't familiar with before I started doing this research, but this is a something that exists in civil law countries that in the English common law world I don't think we really have the equivalent, although I've seen it characterized as something close to what the United States considers the Solicitor General. Uh, but this is a legal officer that oftentimes will issue opinions that courts then defer to or courts can incorporate into their judgments as they wish. Uh, the Advocate General opined that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank is contrary to international law as expressed by the United Nations. And specifically, quoting from the Advocate General's opinion, paragraph 109, he said, quote, the borders of the State of Israel were defined by the plan, of, by the plan, by the plan for the partition of Palestine, drawn up by the UN Special Committee on Palestine, and, and approved on November 29, 1947, by the General Assembly in Resolution 181. On May 14, 1948, the head of the provisional government of the State of Israel proclaimed the birth of that state on the basis of, of borders which had been defined by the plan for partition of Palestine. Uh, well, anybody who knows their history will know that might be one reading of what happened. Uh, but of course, my reading is, I think that the only real, <laughs> the, the only real reading of history is that Ben-Gurion never declared the partition borders to be the borders of the new state. Uh, you know, there's this famous, there's this famous little joke. It's not a joke. There's this famous uh, parable between uh, discussion between Ben Gurion and Pinchas Rosen, who was then, who was um, uh, Ben Gurion's friend and advisor, and who became the first minister of justice uh, of the state of Israel. Rosen was a German trained lawyer and a kind of a formalist in the old, old school German way. Uh, Rosen was supposedly admonishing Ben Gurion that you have to declare the borders that there isn't a state. He's, it's supposedly, he said, in all of, in all of Professor Lauderpass's treatise on international law, there is a mistake in the, in the book that doesn't have well-defined borders, that we don't know where the borders are. And supposedly Ben Gurion, who was not a formalist at all, was a pragmatist, said, wait till the next edition. Anyway, we know that, that Ben Gurion didn't declare the partition borders to be the borders. Um, more than that, we know that on May 11, 1949, Israel was in fact admitted to the United Nations uh, with far more territory already than the partition borders would have given it. Um, anyway, the Advocate General, back to the Britta case, goes on to say that, that the UN Charter and Germany's commitments under the UN Charter predate, which, which mean commitments to recognizing only the partition borders, uh, predate um, and therefore trump the subsequent EU-Israel trade agreement. Right, the EU-Israel Trade Agreement, which would have given the Israeli Custom Authority the sole discretion, the sole, authority, the sole responsibility for determining whether these goods were produced inside Israel or not. The European Court of Justice confirms all of this, and they say in any case, 
the EU had another has another agreement with the with the PLO regarding PA administered territory uh, that they also have to respect. Although of course the PA doesn't administer the territories that are still occupied. Right? That is, the, the, under the Advocate General's definition, are still occupied. The PA obviously doesn't administer those, or they wouldn't be occupied. Um, in any case, in the end, what the judgment stands for is that the prior treaty, the UN Charter, trumps the subsequent treaty, the EU-Israel Trade Agreement. Um, and therefore, as they say, international, and the reason is that international law is, is deeper than the immediate consent of the parties to any given treaty. Now this is, I, I don't want to go into too much international law theory, but that, um, this is a controversial point in the international law world. That is, we have a world of sovereign states, typically. The UN Charter isn't a constitution, it's just one more treaty. It's a big multilateral treaty, but it's just one more treaty in a world of sovereign states that sign treaties all the time. And we usually think that international law is a product of state consent. That is, it's a product of treaty agreements or of customary activities that are consensually done by states. Here, somehow, the ECJ uh, considers it to be, considers the international system as a whole to be greater than the sum of its parts, greater than the treaty, than the treaty commitments that its constituents make from time to time. Now, all of this, as I said earlier, is in the face of a nearly identical case um, under the EU Kingdom of Morocco Association Agreement of March 2000. Um, the disputes between the, the dispute between the EU, EU and Morocco had to do with products originating in the Western Sahara. Now, the Western Sahara, you probably know, is a desert territory on the south, bordering Morocco on the southwest of the Kingdom of Morocco. In 19, to make a long story short, in 19, it was a Spanish colony. It was called the Spanish Sahara. In 1975, Spain declared its intention to decolonize uh, the area. The International Court of Justice said that the inhabitants have a right to a referendum on self-government. Uh, the territory was then claimed by two neighboring states, Mauritania on one side and Morocco on the other. A couple of years later, by the late 70s, Mauritania had dropped its claim, and Morocco occupied the territory of the Western Sahara, sending in hundreds of thousands of civilian settlers and building new towns and industrial infrastructure, etc. Um, and then in a series of resolutions, the United Nations specifically GA Resolution 3437 of November 21, 1979, early in this piece, said that um, UN deeply deplores Morocco's occupation of the Western Sahara, calls for the right of the Saharan people to self-determination, etc. Anyway, the, the Western Sahara is a phosphate-rich territory, and the coast of the Western Sahara are rich fishing, uh, rich fishing waters. The EU-Morocco agreement mirrors the Israeli one, Title II of that agreement calls for a duty-free flow of goods between the two parties. Article 94 says it applies to goods originating within the territory of one of the signing parties, and it gives the Morocco Customs Authority sole authority to determine what goods have originated in Morocco and what haven't. Um, uh, Morocco, as I said, exports fish and phosphates to the EU, qualifying these as duty-free exports to the EU. The European Union has taken the position that the EU-Morocco agreement doesn't specifically exclude Western the Western Sahara from Moroccan territory, and therefore the Moroccan certificate of origin for goods originating in the Western Sahara can be taken at face value. Um, this, as I, and I should say, this is in spite of a specific, a specific opinion given by the uh, legal advisor to the Secretary General to the Security Council in January of 2002 saying that Morocco's exploitation of Western Saharan resources 
um, violates international law under the UN's decolonization resolutions and its declaration on non-self-governing territories. The, the EU's answer has been that domestic law and policy of the EU trump these international instruments. Now, again, that, that actually shouldn't be all that controversial among uh, international lawyers. That is to say, lots of, lots of courts around the world have said that, including US federal courts have said that domestic law will, in, in, the, in the event of a direct conflict, domestic legislation uh, will trump international agreements. Uh, but in uh, uh, 2006, the EU-Morocco uh, fisheries agreement specifically allowing fish fish imports from the Western Sahara was said to trump the EU, um, uh, was said to trump the um, Security Council's legal opinion uh, as to the status of the Western Sahara. So here, the EU has ignored international law pronounced by the United Nations in favor of its own domestic policy interests and in favor of, and of course, Morocco's sovereign right to unilaterally determine its own borders. All right, now let's put that aside for a second. Let me spend five minutes talking about the, um, again, the uh, this is a case about deregistering a charity. It's another kind of tax-oriented case, tax law-oriented case. Um, Le the Vida Dome is fully registered as a charity in a lot of different countries, including in Canada, uh, which included in Canada this, the Canadian Magenda Vida Dome's registration gives, of course, Canadian donors a charitable tax receipt uh, when they donate money. Um, the specific purposes of Canadian Magenda Vida Dome uh, to quote from the Canada Corporations Act, registration is to donate emergency medical supplies and ambulances directly to the people of Israel. Starting in the late 90s, in 1998, the Canadian Department of Revenue uh, started corresponding in a series of interrogatories with the charity. Uh, it started off pointing out that its um, ambulances are administered by a kind of agency agreement, which it didn't think was a clear enough agency agreement, with Magen David Adolm headquarters in Israel itself. The inquiries ask, where are these ambulances deployed? Where does Canadian Dome's charitable fund get deployed inside of Israel? And it pointed to the website of Magenda Dome at the time, which said that it operates ambulances in, quote, all of Israel, and then included a map, um, a map of Israel, including the West Bank and Gaza. This is pre-2005 disengagement. Um, the Federal Court of Canada, when, they, when, when the Department of Revenue moved to Register uh, Canadian Magenda Vida Dome. It went to the Federal Court of Canada. The court quoted uh, the, the, court, the court recites an opinion letter from legal counsel for the Minister of National Revenue, who said, and I quote, Israel's permanent control over territories occupied in 1967 is not recognized under international law. This policy is grounded in UN Security Council Resolution 242 and 338 and the Fourth Geneva Convention of August 1949. Consistent with these instruments, the department's view that providing assistance to Israeli settlements in the occupied territories, including assistance in establishing and maintaining physical and social infrastructure, serves to encourage and enhance the permanency of settlements and is therefore contrary to public policy on this issue. The court went all through this and determined that since Canadian Magenda Vida Dome didn't have a clear enough agency agreement with Magenda Vida Dome headquarters to determine where the um, ambulances, the Canadian funded ambulances were being deployed, they could assume that they were being deployed everywhere where the Magenda Vida Dome's map said that they operate, and therefore this was uh, contrary to Canadian law. Again, the Department of National Revenue, the Minister of National Revenue at the time, submitted one interpretation of international law. In fact, 
there's a good argument that this wasn't at all the, the correct interpretation of international law. Uh, we know, international lawyers know, the 1971 Namibia case, the International Court of Justice said that while courts are not supposed to recognize permanent changes brought about in occupied territories, there's a so-called humanitarian exception. As the court said, this must not result in depriving the people of those territories of any advantages to be, de to be derived from international cooperation. Now, it's easy to see Magin David Adom fitting into the humanitarian exception. Whatever else one thinks about the international legal status of the West Bank, it's easy to see Magin David Adom fitting into the humanitarian exception uh, to the general rule. You know, Amnesty International, I, I, all, finally all of the NGOs, um, even, the one, even the ones that NGO Monitor criticizes, have at least, you know, Amnesty International, they've come to the, uh, in its 2003 report on the United Settlers, has come to the conclusion that Perhaps they shouldn't be there under international law, but they are human beings with rights. Uh, to deprive ambulance services, uh, to deprive these populations the benefit of ambulance services, seems precisely the interpretation of the Fourth Geneva Convention that the ICJ was warning against. In any case, um, the Federal Court of Canada took the Department of Revenue's interpretation of international law and ran with it, and used it to trump the charitable registration of Canadian Magenda Vida Dome under the Income Tax Act. In other words, here, um, international law, or at least one contentious version of international law, overrides the domestic legislative policy. All of this, I should say, in face of well-established precedent in Canada, to the contrary, not in the tax field, this is kind of rare in the tax field, but there's certainly precedent, lots of long-time, long-standing precedent to the contrary. Canadian courts have long held that where there's a collision um, uh, between domestic legislative policy and international commitments, it's the domestic legislative policy that trumps. We've had recent, you know, in, in, in the past decade, we've had cases in the, law, in the field of terrorism, famous case in Canada, the Ahani case, um, uh, that reiterated the same principle, that Ahani was a terrorist, was a, an operative of the Iranian government uh, who was found to be a terrorist by the um, uh, Federal Court of Canada and was declared uh, deportable. He took his case to the um, uh, UN Human Rights the, to the UN Human Rights Committee uh, under the optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, saying that he would be tortured and mistreated in various ways if he were returned to Iran. Um, uh, the Canadian courts have said that we can ignore we can ignore the rulings of the UN Human Rights Committee under an international under an international agreement because legislative policy the Supreme Court of Canada said that the man is deportable legislative policy when there's a direct direct collision will trump the international law. Alright, European Court of Justice, to sum up, prefers a treaty obligation to its specific trade obligation in the face of precedent to the contrary, and as I said in the process, turns the relevant international law on its head. The Federal Court of Canada prefers the Geneva Convention to its own specific income tax obligation in the face of precedent to the contrary, and in the process turns the relevant international law on its head. Uh, both courts are twisting around here to deny rights to the Israeli interests and entities, um, where they have not done so with respect to Morocco on one hand and Iran on the other hand. Um, and so my real underlying question is, well, what gives? Why should this be? Now, I don't, I'm not going to go into, as I said, the, the paper involves a fair bit of international law theory, which I won't go into now because I'm going to save a few minutes for my, my next panelist, my colleague here. Um, uh, I just want to say that preferring the first treaty over a latter one and preferring international law obligations to statutory ones 
which is the message of the Brita and the Magenta Dome case, um, they both mean the same thing. That is to say, the multilateral commitment would trump the unilateral state policy. Okay? Uh, preferring a second treaty over a prior one and preferring an international treaty to a domestic or a legislative policy also amounts to the same thing. And these are the messages of the Western Sahara case and the Amani case, two cases on the other side of this paradigm. They also amount to the same thing. And they, they amount to saying that the unilaterally formulated state policy trumps the multilateral commitment. All of this in international law theory, but both of these are eminently possible in international law theory. Right? That is to say, it could be that state commitments, sovereign state commitments, trump multilateral commitments, or it could be that multilateral commitments trump state commitments. There's a good logical argument either way. It's inherently manipulable in international law, and there's not, there's not much of a way out of that paradox. What bothers me, what intrigues me, and what bothers me is that this is all being done in the courts. You know, international law actors traditionally Traditionally, international law isn't judicially determined. Traditionally, it's only kind of, it, it, it's determined in what we usually call the, the horizontal self-judging system of international law. That is, states, state persons, statesmen, foreign ministers, heads of state, debate these things, take positions in international law fora, and as the, as the debates progress, we kind of, we, we see which position trumps the other. To do it in a legal system is, is in a way, to import that explicitly politicized determination into a forum where you think it's not politicized, but this determination of whether or not one trumps the other, a second treaty trumps the first, the first treaty trumps the second, domestic trumps the international, or international trumps the domestic, can't be determined absent politics, and it's much less transparently done in the judicial system than it is in an a, a classic international forum. Uh, where heads of state or foreign ministers debate these things out. So in a way, not to misuse a, um, a legal cliche, but in a way, courts have become the most dangerous branch in this lawfare business, not the least dangerous branch as they're supposed to be in ordinary domestic litigation. Thanks.
after a brief description of the events at the Durban Renew Conference, which I will henceforth just call Durban II, um, which took place in Geneva in April 2009 as a follow-up event to the 2001 Durban World Conference Against Racism, I will pinpoint the core anti-Semitic moment of Durban II, namely the singling out of Israel. The second part of the lecture will address the transformation of anti-Semitism in what we shall term cosmopolitan global democracy. Finally, I will map out a normative conclusion by arguing that cosmopolitan global democracy is unlikely to become a means to abolish anti-Semitism from events such as Durban II or presumably other United Nations settings. Now at the beginning of my presentation, please allow me to read out two short quotes. The first by UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillai, the second by UN General, General Secretary Ban Ki-moon. Both were made on 20th of April 2009 at the closing of Durban II. That is to say, after um, the scandalized speech by Iranian President Ahmadinejad. According to Pillai, I quote, the best repast for this type of event is to reply and correct, not to withdraw and boycott the conference. Ban Ki-moon compliments, quote, that is what the United Nations is all about, people coming together from our walks of life to engage in dialogue and find common ground so that all members of our global community live in peace and dignity, end of quote. What has happened? Canada, the United States, Israel, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Poland declined from participation at Durban II due to the anti-Israel stances which became obvious during the preparation process. Others, such as the United Kingdom and 22 further European countries, boycotted Ahmadinejad's speech. The Czech Republic, then holding the rotating European Council presidency, withdrew its delegation shortly after the anti-Semitic tirade. Also, Pillai and Ban Ki-moon condemned Ahmadinejad's words in the strongest terms and recalled the UN resolution on the ban of Holocaust denial. But at the same time, they praised the ideas behind the conference and the outcome document as a reaction to Ahmadinejad. Now we deliberately picked these two statements and not, as one might expect, an extract from the translation of Ahmadinejad's speech. What struck us was the tension between the rejection of the Iranians, Iranian president's anti-Semitic outburst and the almost simultaneous rebuke against those delegations which either cancelled their participation or left the auditorium during Ahmadinejad's speech. 
dialogue, as it seems, precedes a principle, whatever ideological price one has to pay in the end. Let me thus clarify the points of departure for our subsequent considerations. The emphasis of our analysis is placed on the context in which Durban II happened, and less so on its key anti-Semitic agitators. As Professor Ruth Wise said yesterday, anti-Semitism is about the strategies of organizing politics against the Jews, and we are very much in line with that. To be sure, we share the moral outrage at Ahmadinejad's hate speech and related, if more modest sounding, pronouncements. But as political scientists, we seek to understand, and when I say you understand, I mean intellectually understand, and definitely not extending any kind of sympathy. So we seek to understand the specific ideological groundings on which the events of Durban II could unfold. Arguably, normative conclusions regarding Durban II and, more generally, regarding anti-Semitism in cosmopolitan global democracy can only be drawn on the, on the basis of sound theoretical explanations and systematic research of the respective documents. This also reflects our somewhat growing dissatisfaction with the existing academic literature on the Durban conferences, Israel and the United Nations, as well as anti-Semitism in the United Nations. Many of the readings, at least those that we have consulted, are either largely descriptive or highly morally engaged and fail to provide insights into the how and the why uh, of the persistence and transformations of anti-Semitism. Hence, the guiding question of our research reads as follows. Which are the characteristics of anti-Semitism in cosmopolitan global democracy and to which degree do they apply in the case of Durban II? In this lecture, I shall almost exclusively address the first part of the question, while the thorough examination of the Durban documents is still ahead of us. Now, as we talk of anti-Semitism at the Second Durban Conference, it is due to establish what we estimate to be the core anti-Semitic moment of this event. A hermeneutical reading of all relevant documents made clear that the continuous singling out of Israel has to be termed anti-Semitic. Israel does not only define itself as a Jewish and democratic state, it is also perceived as a Jewish state from outside. Uh, not least by its most fervent enemies. Certainly, attacks against individual Jewish activists pres present in Geneva, be they Israeli or not, should not be downplayed. However, it is safe to say that the overarching theme of the Durban II anti-Semitism was the attempt to exclude Israel from the international community. By way of historical analogy, 
This recalls the processes of marginalization, exclusion, deportation, and physical extermination of Jews from various forms of Gemeinschaft, and I deliberately use the German term here, be it religiously, nationally, or racially defined. Israel, according to its foes at Durban too and elsewhere, allegedly stuck to a retarded version of nationalistic particularism and shamelessly claimed the status of being an eternal victim of the Holocaust. Now on a footnote, our analysis is not concerned with any scrutiny of Israeli government policies and military action. We neither survey the location of settlements nor will we count up death tolls of Israeli and Palestinian civilians. We primarily focus on understanding the circumstances under which Israel is being turned into the Jew among the nations. Making this crucial distinction more explicit, we, for instance, do not buy into endless arguments on whether Zionism could have racist elements. What we consider as anti-Semitic is the fact that Israel's national ideology was branded racist by the United Nations, whilst numerous others, or the general nexus of ethnically defined nationalism and racism, never were. The singling out of Israel, and theoretically, but not in reality of any other country, can occur in various international politics settings. What happens the, the peculiarities of Durban too? In pursuit of our objective to provide a more analytical account of anti-Semitism at Durban too, we will first have to introduce the concept of cosmopolitan global democracy. In the aftermath of the end of the Cold War and further driven by the phenomenon of globalization, a considerable body of scholarship on cosmopolitan global democracy emerged. Now the main thinkers we draw on here are Archibuji and Held with their seminal 1995 volume entitled Cosmopolitan Democracy and a gender for a new world order. Archibuchi held, thus envisaged, a political program which promotes the democratization of international politics, not merely in terms of democratic decision-making in interstate relations and international organizations, but also for the involvement of the people, for instance, in an elected world parliament. Strikingly, Archibuji chiefly dwells on questions of procedural democracy while being rather silent on substantive aspects such as concrete norms. Um, Falk, who is another author who publishes together with Archibuji and Held, complements this vision but with his emphasis on civil society participation. In his 2008 follow-up monograph, Archibuji assigns particular significance to the United Nations. 
and he adds the element of juridification to the previous one of democratization. The upgrading of the International Criminal Court by the implementation of the right to individual review should guarantee the enforcement of cosmopolitan law. That is to say, rights every human being is entitled to. No less important, however, are the voices that are critical of Archimuchi. As Hawthorne argues, in an upshot, cosmopolitan global democracy remains an elitist endeavor of limited practicality. Darling, were we now to more generally question in of the democratic majorities? Beside Archibuchi, Halden Fall, Habermas and Wolf, now the more European debate, uh, proposed almost mutually exclusive concepts of cosmopolitan global democracy. Whilst Habermas clearly favors Western or at times European liberal democracy as the only viable model to build on globally, MOVE calls uh, presumed Western hegemony at the UN in question and encourages even the formation of counter hegemonic strategies. This is very much imbued by the significance attributed to political controversy inside the UN. Habermas suggests that an intersubjective reason would reconcile differences and dissolve antagonisms. Move places difference and antagonism right at the center of her approach and argues that the aim of the democratic uh, politics should be to tame this antagonism to transform it into agonism by producing opposing political projects citizens can identify with. So that's all the theory I'm going to present here. Um, now, based on this brief discussion of cosmopolitan global democracy, the main characteristics of anti-Semitism in respective settings will be sketched out here. Being aware of the risk of all too sweeping generalizations, it can be maintained that Western and especially European post-Holocaust anti-Semitism became marginalized and ostracized thanks to a mainstream consensus against overt anti-Semitism. The downside of this is, of course, that anti-Semitism is being expressed more latently now. Moreover, non-Jews tend to solemnly identify with Jewish victimhood while simultaneously neglecting Jewish claims for nationhood. By contrast, in cosmopolitan global democracy, anti-Semitism is expressed both noisily and unscrupulously. We here discern the indiscriminate access and inclusiveness toward potentially anti-Semitic agitators as well as the global stage the latter are provided with. In spite of all criticism, UN settings continue to grant moral high ground. The dearth of normative consensus, be it founded in law or extra-legally, renders anti-Semitism and also the Holocaust subject to deliberation and competitive claims as any other random subject of global concern. Far from promoting absolute truth, we just want to highlight the risk of contestability. Additional features of our definition 
uh, concerned the open hijacking of the Jewish victimhood experience, this has been broadly elaborated by David Schneider, and tendencies that could be summarized as free riding on elements of European or partly Western post-Holocaust norms, uh, such as the ban on Holocaust denial, Nazi prohibition acts, anti-discrimination provisions. The quest of the organization of the Islamic conference to extend a similar legal protection to Islam as to what anti-Semitism would call, what anti-Semites would call Holocaust religion is but one highly illustrating example. Against this backdrop, real or alleged Jewish insistence on national particularism is doomed to be backwardly and obstructively anti-cosmopolitan in the eyes of Jew haters. Furthermore, and I'm coming to the conclusion in a minute, uh, we want to pose the question whether modified forms of cosmopolitan global democracy yield the potential to help overcome anti-Semitism. This would imply the adoption of a more legal or Habermasian, if you want so, cosmopolitanism, which presupposes some level of democracy in domestic politics and a strong national public sphere. Likewise, the above indicated role of the global judiciary gains significance in this context. One can add the normative consensus with regards to the unequivocal rejection of anti-Semitism not only against individual Jews, but against Israel as a Jewish state, has to be shaped and implemented beyond legislation and adjudication. These propositions are, of course, reminiscent of the post-war development of European integration. Not only the European Declaration of Human Rights and the European Court on uh, European Declaration of Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights are to be mentioned. But more recently, and specifically also the level of government consensus, which has been reached with respect to the fight against anti-Semitism and Holocaust remembrance. It is quite telling that some count the coming to terms with one's country's dictatorial and especially fascist and or collaborationist World War II past as a soft accession criterion to the EU. See the respective debates in Croatia and Romania. But, and that's my caveat, our precipitate enthusiasm regarding the transferability of the European model to the level of cosmopolitan global democracy uh, has to be curbed. Any binding or at least obliging consensus on anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial is out of sight. Um, indeed, the General Assembly has passed resolutions on Holocaust remembrance and Holocaust denial, but their global outreach and effect on realpolitik seem to be limited, to say the very least. We have heard Professor Rice's presentation on that today. Um, a somewhat different approach asks for normative thresholds of participation at events like Durban II. This, however, is not only not feasible, given the design of the UN as an all-encompassing organization, but it would also fail to address the scourge of anti-Semitism showing the door to anti-Semitic delegations, as has happened to individual participants at Durban too, does not prevent anti-Semitism. Our doubts are also nurtured by the very European experience, where government and elite consensus regarding anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial does not necessarily permeate to the public at large. 
even the rereading of the Kantian cosmopolitan principle of hospitality, which requires the acceptance of otherness, appears problematic in the case at stake. Put differently, does it imply the acceptance of Jewish national particularism, or any other national particularism, or does this the acceptance of this Kantian principle may prompt claims by Ahmadinejad and his ilk that their divergent interpretations of the Holocaust have to be accepted as an opinion among many other diverging opinions. Um, now to very briefly sum up, um, what I try to um, do in this lecture is to um, present our model of anti-Semitism in cosmopolitan global democracy. The second part, the actual application of our definition of the documents is, as I've said, still ahead of us in our research effort. Um, and a short normative conclusion that we would like to draw already at this stage of our endeavor is that um, we have doubts whether global cosmopolitan um, democracy yields the response to anti-Semitism at the United Nations or in other international politics settings. We conclude that it will remain part of the problem and not become part of the solution that is to say the eradication of anti-Semitism. Thank you for your attention. Whereas Human Rights Watch is, you know, puts out their annual reports every year, and you can see 
who all the donors are. Um, I think people are starting to take note of the activities of these organizations and that they may be anti-Semitic in nature. Um, Barbara Bernstein last year in the New York Times and his op-ed came out against his own organization that he founded. It was a very painful moment for him. Um, also, the work that our organization has done, we've only been around about seven or eight years, so we've been trying also to highlight um, the activities of these groups. I think one problem is, and it will come up a lot, is when you, when you um, make accusations of anti-Semitism, people are immediately turned off and tend to close off from what you're saying. So I think a lot of um, in our work and a lot of work that other groups are doing, um, they tend to overtly, even though I think in the, the images and the words that I've showed you, I think there are definite anti-Semitic aspects, elements to what, what these people and organizations are saying. But I do think um, in order for the message to be more effective, people don't stress that as much. And it is a problem. Um, but in general, we do find um, a lot of people that say on the center left or on the left that you may want to try to convince and show that you know what these groups are doing is, is immoral um, and anti-Semitic. They will tend to close off if you say, "Oh, this is anti-Semitic." You say it overtly, so it's a challenge. How the best? Um, Wouldn't that the, basically defy the Ruth Weiss's uh, point? It's time to take it on uh, uh, frontally and not be so uh, dicey walking on eggshells about that it might uh, 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 insult somebody if we tell it the way it is. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. I think we definitely should put it out there. I, I definitely think that that is the case. Um, but again, um, we do encounter those problems in terms of the work we do, especially when we speak with government officials. Um, the immediate, that's their, I actually was in Ireland speaking to the parliament in June, and a lot of the parliamentarians, when I was making my remarks, you know, each of them were saying, we're not anti-Semitic, you know, you know, this isn't about anti-Semitism. They, they can't really hear what you're saying when you invoke that terminology. I think with Jewish groups, you may have Jewish donors, you may have a better uh, chance um, of getting the message through. I'm going to be focused on that because they tend to be the greatest contributor, the, the largest percentage contribution to NGOs mm -hmm. come from the Jewish community in the United States. I mean, I think when we, um, in the past six months or so, we've been you know, highlighting some of the activities of the new Israel Fund and um, showing where some of the work they're funding is explicitly anti-Semitic. And they, they you know, came back in this hard. They were putting ads in the paper saying we were right-wing extremists. Um, you know, we're only doing this because we want to prop up a settlement regime. Um, you know, explicitly denying the claims, even though you know, it's plain for everyone to see on the websites and um, publications of these groups. So we and and you know after that campaign, the, the board of the NIF met at the end of June, and it now appears that they are actually taking what we said seriously. Um, so we do see some impact on that, especially you know with, with the Jewish donors, because a lot of times many donors of the New Israel Fund didn't know what was going on when we were speaking with people and we would show these examples. They had no idea what they were funding. You know the NIF bills itself as you know, promoting pluralism, progressive causes, and, and they do fund a lot of, you know, 
positive work in Israel, but they are also funding 20 or so organizations that are involved in anti-Semitic demonization and delegitimization. Um, so, it, but I do think it's, yeah, I do think, depending on the context, that does need to be highlighted. Um, Ed, um, what, um, what principle can we derive from, from these cases other than that um, uh, laws being distorted in ways that disfavor Israel? Uh, and, and even if that is the, even if that is the lesson, is there now an emerging principle of Canadian or German law that anyone whose interests uh, converge with Israel must lose their case? <laughs> and is, that, is that sort of generalizable? Uh, no, I don't. I, 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 one hopes not. Um, I certainly don't think. No, I don't draw that conclusion. My, I mean, but I do draw the conclusion that it's not easy to draw any legal principles out of the domestic incorporation of these international law cases because international law itself has this malleability that we can't get away from. Um, uh, um, uh, but I, I, mean, uh, I don't want to. Uh, I certainly don't want to come. I don't want to be paranoid about it. Um, and I don't. Obviously, I'm a Canadian law professor. I know more about Canada than I do about um, Germany. But I'm not going to say that this is endemic through the Canadian legal system. Here's sporadic examples of what's going on when. Um, uh, you know, when, when, law, when law for, lawfare, as we call it, spreads out into unpredictable areas. And so you get the Department of National Revenue in Canada, or the um, uh, Advocate General in Germany, officials, legal officials, legal thinkers who know nothing about the Middle East conflict, uh, per se, coming up with opinions that courts now defer to. Uh, having said that, you know, I can, I can tell you just um, last week the Quebec Court of Appeal uh, dismissed a case also involving um, uh, uh, the West Bank, um, there was a case. There is a case brought Billion Village, a case by um, West Bank Village, uh, who claims that there has, some of the village lands been, have been expropriated by the Israeli government for building a Jewish settlement adjacent to the village. The construction was done under contract to a Canadian company, uh, Montreal-based construction company. So they sued the Montreal-based construction company in the Quebec courts. It was dismissed at, 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 um, uh, it was dismissed on a motion um, by the Quebec Superior Court. Just last week, that dismissal was upheld by the uh, Quebec Court of Appeal um, on, on jurisdictional grounds, that is to say, on the theory that there's no real and substantial connection between what's going on over there, whatever you say is going on, whatever wrongdoing is alleged, the wrongdoing isn't in Canada, isn't in Quebec, it's, over, it, it, it's in a foreign country, and so therefore there's no territorial nexus uh, to Quebec jurisdiction. So I can't say that, that Israel or Israeli-oriented interests are losing every case, even in the Canadian courts. Um, all I can say is that, what, is that we oftentimes now see the lawfare phenomenon taking hold of judicial actors and people, uh, you know, um, the judiciary and other legal officials opining on things that are way outside of their league and reading, you know, they're kind of Maybe they're breathing in the Goldstone atmosphere. They're reading kind of they're, they're reading sources that aren't real sources that are you know uh, trumped up sources oftentimes. But like I said, not all the time. Sometimes they read they, they read the bona fide legal history. I would just add to that. Also in the UK, actually the same NGO that brought the Canada case, Al Haq, um, also brought two cases in the UK, civil cases to impose uh, um, basically trade sanctions and have the ICJ opinion on the security barrier judicially enforced in the UK. And the courts have rejected that there. Um, so it's, it's not across the board. Um, and also in the US, 
civil cases, uh, similar civil cases, have all been dismissed. So it's actually um, fairly rare that these cases are enforced, which is good news. Um, most of the courts, you know, are not engaging in that kind of uh, overreaching, let's say. Yes, um, sorry, missed your presentation, but uh, on a lower level, uh, I go to the Frankfurt Book Fair. For the last uh, three years, I've had a, uh, an agreement with the director of the book fair to uh, get hate out of the fair because that violates the contract of the displaying publishers. Um, I go around, I take the offending books, many of which, for example, are Iranian incitement to jihad for children, I place them under the name of the publisher, take a photo, and uh, then that evening, send them to the director of the book fair. That night, the police come in, they confiscate. Following morning, I go back and I find the books there, they've been confiscated. Why? Because when I asked the uh, storekeeper uh, if the police were not there, he opens up the bag, but plenty more. Uh, however, please hold these for investigation. Book fair lasts five days. Two weeks later, they come up with some type of reading, but it's too late to do anything about it anyway. So it's, it's a nice exercise. But I don't know what legal mechanism they may need to, after the book fair, be able to proceed. You mentioned Germany. I don't know if any of you have uh, the right contacts to see that it doesn't get stuck just with the police, doesn't simply die. Uh, we had one big success, and that was with the Turks, uh, because every year the book fair is dedicated to a country or a region. And uh, two years ago, it was Turkey. And uh, I found the most offensive books on the Turkish Ministry of Culture stand. So um, the following year, when it went to China last year, it was totally clean. There was nothing on any Turkish stand, not for Jews, not against Jews. And when I asked the chairman of the Turkish Publishers Association what happened, again, it wasn't the law that prevailed. He said, well, there was this Jewish organization that sent the Germans to us, and we had these little metal barcodes and they wouldn't give us barcodes with anything that had a Star of David on it. So, um, but I would prefer to have a different way. Yeah, no, listen, I'm, uh, my piece is a comparative law piece, and I was comparing Canada to Germany, but I'm a Canadian, not a German. I do have, I, I did have a um, uh, research assistant who was an intern in a German um, uh, law firm. Uh, so, it, it, frankly, if you emailed me the question, I would actually, I, I'd send it on and try to get an answer. It's a good, it, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Oftentimes, legal remedies are too protracted. I mean, you know that. You, know, you, you, sue, to stop, you sue to get some um, uh, uh, wrongful activity stopped, and four years later, you get some opinion from a court that it's completely water under the bridge. Uh, that said, I do like, I like your description of your method, and it does, uh, this to go back to compliment uh, our colleagues at NGO Monitor, I, I like the method that is to say, without any, rhetoric, without any rhetorical embellishment, taking the picture of the book, the book, the bookseller, the book, and the, the publisher's contract and saying, look, look at this and look at that. Um, presenting the evidence in the most straightforward way, I think is obviously the way to go in all of these kind of quasi-legal battles. I do have to say that that's, as a reader of the NGO Monitor, that is what I think um, uh, these guys try to do and do pretty effectively. That is not, not heavily, but not heavily rhetorically embellished. They just try to present the evidence, and I think that that is why 
um, at least in some contexts, New Israel Fund, for example, because I think that they do have donors in good faith. Mm -hmm. They don't have anti-Israel donors, they have donors right. who are in good faith, but just the organization is just overreaching more than their donors think. Mm -hmm. You present the evidence uh, in a straightforward way, it, is, it, it can be very effective. Also, i just add um, some uh, uh, combatant boycotts in, in England and France have been very successful uh, proceeding under anti-discrimination laws. Um, so I don't know if Germany has those, I believe they do, but that would be Can I just quote for information? Um, we did a report of 37 uh, invasions of uh, supermarkets in France in this past year, um, many of which identified on neo-Nazi sites as Jewish owned. And what happens is wearing uniform, uh, these uh, BDS groups burst in, go to the kosher stands, Rifle everything which is kosher, put them in the uh, trolleys, take them outside, they force their way through the uh, cash desks, and burn them. And so, on grounds uh, of what you just suggested, this uh, the Minister of the Interior has now agreed that under an 1881 French law, uh, this is uh, because it's kosher and not everything that has an affinity with Israel, uh, this is in fact um, a racial discrimination and can be prosecuted the body, so we're looking forward to seeing that happen. Uh, I have a question with regard to the boycott of Israeli goods in uh, Washington State, um, where the owners of the uh, farmer's markets, I believe they are, or the, the managers of the farmer's markets, have explicitly made anti-Semitic, uh, not just anti-Israel statements, but anti-Semitic statements in their justification of why they're doing it. My question is, uh, what's being done about prosecuting somebody like that? Um, I don't know, um, I know about the incident you're talking about. Um, I don't know if anyone's tried legal action yet to reverse the decision of that food law. Um, there are anti-boycott statutes in the U.S. that people really haven't been exploring to use as a strategy to defeat BDS here, which I think they should start doing. Um, in Davis, California, there was a food co-op that um, rejected a boycott effort specifically on the basis of those laws. So I think that could be a very effective strategy for people. Um, but in terms of the Washington state, I don't know what uh, legal steps people are taking to what, what was shocking and surprising was that the director or whatever the title of the one or whoever runs that market uh, uh, explained on anti-Semitic grounds that Jews have, don't have a right to be there and they use uh, uh, the, the claim of right of return uh, when they don't have a right to be there in the first place. Now, uh, for somebody to go out on a limb like that uh, a, a commercial enterprise that makes a statement like that. Uh, I mean, he could be sued uh, up and down for, for everything under the sun. Now, who would be responsible to do that? Hey, uh, anybody can <laughs>
the enabling realm uh, is actually the point in the case. It's actually the point. So the Lawfare thing comes in as you put it in terms of the goldstone atmospherics in the uh, judicial decision. So my question is, is there some kind of lawfare in the initial uh, deregistration of Hayman and Dominion, which then caused them to have to take uh, the action? I mean, was there any sense of arbitrariness or singling out uh, that brought this whole thing about? You know, it's such a, it's a good question. Um, it's not easy because we don't know what prompts. We, we don't know what prompts right into investigations of, a, of an entity. Um, um, uh, you, you probably know this. In, in, in the, over the past uh, decade in Canada, there have been revenue investigations of Jewish organizations all over the place. Um, uh, what's prompting this? What what is it that's prompting this? Is it is not easy to say. There are there, you know there's all kinds of there's all kinds of theories out there. I don't, I don't, I don't like to sound like a paranoid. Uh, but there, no, but there, theories are that, that um, uh, because Muslim charities since 9/11 have been under scrutiny, there's a kind of lobbying campaign to get to get the Department of Revenue to also scrutinize Jewish organizations. Uh, um, and you know, sometimes government bureaucracies are um, sort of prone to this sort of false even-handedness. Uh, hard to know, but. Um, you're, I think you're right that this lawfare, lawfare isn't a brand new phenomenon. We only started talking about it recently, but it's been, you know, it's, it's been around for a while. It's certainly been around since the '90s, um, if not before. And it often doesn't start in the courts. It often starts with some kind of government investigation, which then prompts. It's very, this is a very good example, which then prompts the judicial action rather than uh, starting with court action. I'll also say that lawfare isn't, of course, only against Israel and, and Jewish interests. It's all. It, it, it's also carried on by Israel and Jewish interests. I would call you know most of the terror victims litigation um, that's going on, especially in the United States, and then attempts to enforce those judgments around the world is a kind of a lawfare. You know, it's a, back, a lawfare backlash, um, uh, and and we see this going on more and more. I, I should say uh, parallel with the Quebec with the Quebec court's dismissal of the Bulleen Village claim against the construction company has been the Quebec court's dismissal of a terror victim's claim um, uh, against uh, a bank, the so-called Lebanese Canadian Bank, which the U.S. Department of the Treasury has identified as being a prime funder, a, a primary funder of Hezbollah, or a primary channel for the, fund, for the funding of Hezbollah in Lebanon. There's a terror victim's group that brought in, also in the Quebec Superior Court, a claim against that bank for having funded Hezbollah during the um, 2006 Summer 2006, four. Um, there's a group of plaintiffs who are Quebec, who are um, Canadian residents with homes that were destroyed in the north of Israel during the course of that war. They brought a case in the Quebec Superior Court that, that's also been dismissed on the same on the same theory that there's no real and substantial connection to Quebec itself because whatever else the Department of Treasury in the United States says about the Lebanese Canadian Bank, it doesn't say that it's doing its funding of Hezbollah through its Canadian branches. It's got 13 branches, that bank has 13 branches in Lebanon itself, and those are the branches that the Department of Treasury has identified as being the culprits, and so there wasn't enough of a connection to Quebec jurisdiction to sustain the case. Um, so, but it's just an example that the cases, the, the, the cases are initiated by both sides, sometimes by pro-Israel, um, uh, by the pro-Israel side, sometimes by the anti-Israel side, and um, uh, it's, it's just, it's become a, a kind of, um, uh, a, a multifaceted and complicated phenomenon.